episode 46 of Literary Disco, the best American short stories 2013. Today's episode in two parts, we'll do a bookshelf revisit, segment in which Todd, Julia, and I take down an old book to talk about, and then we'll read three selections from the latest best American short stories. Trains by Alice Munro, Philanthropy by Suzanne Rivica, and Breatharians by Callan Wink. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. How's it going, guys? Great. It goes well. How are you, sir? Good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's the New Year. Oh, and you know what? By the time this episode airs, I think, well, at some point during the episode airing, I will have had a birthday. So... I'm going to be turning, uh, I'm turning 33. Wow. 30, 33. You are so old. Yeah, I'm going backwards. I'm going backwards in time this year. Now, I have my 43rd birthday on January 10th. So now you also all have access to every sort of code you might want to get into any of my bank accounts. Yes. Uh, Identity theft, that's Todd's birthday gift to you guys. And I I don't know about you guys, when... I used to want a lot of presents for my birthday, um, and now mostly I just want to not age. Um, but I was thinking about how, when I was a kid, I got a birthday book from my mom that was, this was like 1979 or something, where you I, apparently you'd call ahead and you'd ask for them to, you know, put the character's name Todd into oh, everything, yeah. just like a little children's book. I still have that book. I still have it on my bookshelf. Um, is the first, I think, book that had my name and it's spelled correctly. That's the downside, as I think Ryder can probably attest to, is that when your name is spelled oddly or is odd, you don't get a lot of cool shit with your name in it. And that was, uh, that was a significant thing. No, those little license plates? Never had one. Never had one. All right. Let's do, let's do a revisit. Um, Julia, you want to go first? Sure. Um, so I mentioned to Ryder before we started recording, I am in the middle of this ginormous uh, entire bookshelf reorganization, which I will be Instagramming later. Um because I'll be very proud of myself. I have probably 2,000 books in the apartment, and I'm taking them all down and reorganizing them. Um, And one of the things I unearthed was this great book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities by Jane Jacobs. Has anyone read this? No. Okay, um, well, this is a very specific um, sort of book. It's, It's nonfiction, and it's about, it's basically about urban renewal and all the ways you can do it wrong um but it's just so beautifully (laughs) written sort of an anti-self-help book if if any of our listeners live in a place uh like a small city that is constantly having multi-million dollar multi-year projects to try to revive the city and then they're a humongous failure um and no one goes to that plaza or that park because they're horribly done and out of the way and not actually pedestrian friendly. I'm sure Hartford knows nothing about this. Oh my God. This is why I read the book. Um, every every yeah, exactly. two or three years in Hartford, there's some new big thing. And every time it's like this embarrassment. So there's this basically graveyard of public projects surrounding the city. And this book is great because it talks about how people actually use cities, where they go and why, and how you tie together all the different forces in a city to support that rather than take some good-hearted multimillionaire's idea of what a city should be and imposing it on that place. So it's all about place and it's all about urban strategy and all that stuff. So it took me a really long time to read it and it's probably mostly read by graduate students (laughs) but it doesn't matter it's a it's a great great book especially if you live in a city that is alternatively great and depressing so if we have listeners in detroit or other people in hartford (laughs) hey guys did you guys hear about by the way that whole thing where they're giving writers basically free houses in detroit yes yeah no. Oh yeah, that that's been passed around in Hartford too. Yeah, it basically, like they, it, it doesn't describe the neighborhoods uh, in in terms that I think make it clear where you'd be living. It's like a perfect place to inspire your creativity and a neighborhood with interesting uh, people and developments, which seems to me to be like where needles are easily found and where you will die, <laughs> where your poetry reading outside will be met with gunfire. Are you an alcoholic writer? <laughs> we'll help you drink yourself to death. Come to Detroit. Do you love intravenous drugs? Are you bottoming out? Did your second novel not do as well as you hoped? <laughs> oh, Come on down to Detroit. Oh, shit. Drink your troubles away. If, if that was the prerequisite, Detroit would be filled. Like, Brooklyn would empty out. <laughs> 
just be guys in, in ratty sweaters and messenger bags standing in, at the Michigan border being like, yeah, um, I got I, I got a starter you and Kirkus and that was it. And that was my career. I'll be interested to see if it really works because, you know, there are like how what is Detroit going to do, basically? And, and Jane Jacobs is asking that question. On the front, it says, the New York Times book review said, perhaps the most influential single work in the history of town planning. Wow. That's right. The chapter titles are are very indicative of what the book is like. So here we go. Failed parks, big malls. Part one is a five-chapter thing called the uses of sidewalks, safety, the uses of sidewalks, <laughs> contact, the uses of sidewalks, assimilating children. Like those are the first few chapters. Well, it is, it's really going to be hard for me to masturbate to this book, but I'm going to give it a yes, shot. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. That is not a use of the sidewalk, Todd. <laughs> All right. Well, I was going to do a book for my revisit, but I've decided to completely cheat and just talk about something really cool that I've been talking about a lot over the holiday season, which was something my brother-in-law pointed out, my new brother-in-law pointed out to me. Um, everybody should go to this New York. I'm going to put a link up, but it's a New York Times dialect quiz. Have you guys? Yes, oh, yeah. I did oh, it. I, I totally it. did it. Yeah. I took the okay. hell out of it. This is the coolest thing in the world did it get you guys correct yes Completely it got me correct. absolutely correct that's the coolest thing in the world so for those of you who don't know what this is it's basically a 25 question quiz to, um developed by uh harvard scientists of some sort what are they harvard dialect specialists right what would you call linguists linguists um, and linguists there you go so these harvard linguists who um, put together 25 questions, and the, the questions obviously shift based on how you answer the first couple, so there's probably about 100 questions total. And then based on your answers, and it's not, it's, it's some of it is about pronunciation, but I think it mostly it's about um, vocabulary. So, mm -hmm. like, if you load the, it, the first question might be, how would you address a group of two or more people? And then there's a multiple choice, and it's either you all, yous, you lot, you guys, yuns, yins, questions like that. Or even weirder ones like, what do you call the gray bug, the little gray bug that curls up when right. you touch it? Is it a pill bug, a roly-poly, a, roly a potato <laughs> bug? Well, it depends on where you're from, right? right? And then there's like, and then there's some where you don't have a word for it, and it just says, I have no word for this. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, what is, what do you, what, what do you, when you slow down and... Uh, look at an accident when people slow down to look at an accident from their cars is that rubbernecking is rubbernecking the activity but a rubberneck the name of the jam or mm. i don't have a word for this and it's so it's just one of these fascinating um examples of how different americans speak i just love that there's like still these areas of life and that they kind of focus on the same things like uh things about community or like little, little nature um, natural parts of the natural world that like infiltrate our lives on a daily basis or like things to do with driving that we don't really have words for like the road that's alongside of a freeway or whether it's a freeway or a tollway or a highway like we all use these things but in different parts of the country they have completely different words for them because they haven't been unified by the country yet like we i mean i'm sure as we develop more and more technology we communicate more and more these dialects will start slipping away but it's just a really fun way and what's fun about it is that you kind of know where it's going when you see some of these things and you have to like reach back into your childhood to answer it honestly do you know what i mean like it's like you have to be you have to like answer from your heart because like i know that in new york it's called a stoop sale and that it's a yard sale mm -hmm. in other parts of the country and it's a garage sale in other parts of the country but so I could answer this sort of in character. I yeah. could answer oh, yeah. this appropriately based on where I wanted it to say I'm from. But so it was interesting to just be like, no, 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 no. I have to be like, re, you know, deep down into like my inner child. Like, what would the 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 young writer say? And of course, it nailed me perfectly. It mm -hmm. said Santa Rosa, California. It literally said within 35 minutes from where right. I grew up. It was like, what? The, I got I got Santa Rosa, Sacramento, and um, yeah. some other Northern California community. Yeah. So it was, it was like a triangle around Walnut Creek. You and I got the exact same ones. I bet you we answered the exact yeah. same way. <laughs> Mine was one-third New Jersey, one-third New York, and one-third Boston. So it's like my childhood, my relatives, and my yes. adult life all yeah. Meshed together. It was amazing. It's the relative things that is interesting. So there was one where it asks you to describe something that's at a diagonal to you on, on the street. And I was like, oh, that's kitty corner. But then I was like, why on earth do I call it kitty corner? I, 
I've never actually heard anyone other yeah. than like my mom say kitty corner. But so I clicked kitty corner. And then when it shows you the, the map of the hot spots of where your answer is, it is like, oh, it's right there in eastern Washington where my <laughs> right. mom grew up is, is where that term comes from. I mean, it's, it's, so much, it's a lot more complex than the whole soda, pop, Coke uh, dividing line of the country. You know, how you, how you refer to a soft drink. For instance, I call a soft drink a soft drink. Um, yeah, I was, I was absolutely fascinated by it. And then I was like, well, what if I tried to change it based on something I think I know is correct? And still, it was just yeah. the same. You know, I, I still... It, the only thing that would have swayed it is if they had said, have you ever used the word hella? Oh, yeah. And I'd have been like, oh, yeah. <laughs> That's like the clear Northern <laughs> California giveaway. <laughs> it's such a hella giveaway. <laughs> yeah, one of my, my favorite little facts uh, is that I learned from one of these quizzes is um, that, okay, um, they're virgin, we're focusing on the word Mary here. So the Virgin Mary, will you marry me, and Merry Christmas, Those mm-hmm. the only place where those sound like three completely different words is New Jersey, where I am from. For other people, they are homonyms. And I just, like, I can't unseparate the sounds. It's something my voice will never be able so to funny. do. That's actually what brought there three totally different things. Was Alex, uh, my wife, was making fun of me because I said, you, you know, you take the ferry over there. And she was like, wait, what did you say? Like, the ferry. She's like, you mean ferry? I'm like, fur? I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. She's like, you uh, just said the what? thing that flies <laughs> in the air like Tinkerbell. You rode that. And I'm like, yeah, it's that's the, the ferry. It's the same word. Yeah. You're saying the same thing. And she's like, no, it's furry. I can't even do it, what she does. She goes, furry. It's not furry, <laughs> but it's like, you know, there's a distinction between the thing that flies and the thing you ride on as a boat. And I don't make any distinction. It's right. Like, it's a ferry. I make no distinction either. Well, you want to hear something weird? <laughs> this happened like a month ago. My wife, Wendy, and I were driving with our friend Amanda, and we were talking about something, and I said, oh, you know what's weird, though, is that I pronounced my, in my head my friend Todd's name, who spells his name with two Ds, sounds different than my name. Really? And, uh, and, and then Wendy says, well, you say them differently. And I was like, I don't say them differently. She said, say them. And so I said, Todd, which is my friend Todd's name. And she said, all right, now say your name. And I said, Todd. And she's like, yeah. <laughs> you you, you, you say them differently. Say I was like, I do say them differently. She's like, you, you, uh, you, you, are, you have one D in your name and Todd has two Ds. So you clearly pronounce it differently. I'm like, am I saying it wrong? And she's like, I've never heard anyone else say it that way. And then our friend Amanda's like, yeah, I've never heard anyone say it that way either. And then they also reminded me that I don't actually say my wife's name correctly. I, I usually say Wendy. And her name is Wendy. <laughs> and, Wendy. Uh, um, and I'm like, That's oh god, rude. you're right. I do say, I do say Wendy. I don't say Wendy. I say Wendy. But but then I was like, but hold on a minute. So I say my name wrong. And they're like, yeah, you say it like your name is spelled T A H D, Todd. Well, when you talk about other people named Todd, you say Todd. That's hysterical. Like, this is crazy. So I call my sister, and I'm like, Linda, say my name. She's like, what? I was like, say my name. <laughs> She said, she said my name like I say my name. I'm like, all right, now say Todd Harris's name. And she said Todd Harris's name. I was like, it does sound different. This is really weird. A, a lot of people pronounce Julia with uh, just two syllables. Okay, let me see if I can do it. It's really hard. It's, no. Yeah. I say it with three. Yeah. Julia. 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 Yeah. Hey, Julia. You want to yeah, come over exactly, here and sit down, yeah. huh? Hey, Julia. <laughs> Have a hoagie with me, Julia. Julia. Hey, Julia. Julia. How much you pay for that sweater set, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yep, there we go. All right, so Todd, what did you read? (laughs) Well, I've got two things that I want to draw your attention to. Uh, The first is a really wonderful essay that was in the New York Times on uh, December 26th by a writer named Chris Huntington, who I hope pronounces his name that way. Um, called Learning to Measure Time in Love and Loss. And it was in their Modern Love column. And it's a profoundly moving essay. So profound, in fact, that I read it like three times and cried every time. And so then I wrote him an email to tell him how much I loved it, Um, which I'm trying to do more and more often is when I read something, tell people how much I like it. It's this great essay about him sort of learning to deal, you know, I guess with with time and with love and with writing and with disappointment and with, you know, all the things that are my sweet spots for things that make me cry. 
Um, so I'll, I'll put a link up to it on, on our Facebook page, but it's this last paragraph of the essay, and it won't ruin anything for me to read the last paragraph, that just hit me in the chest. Um, he says, When the battery in my watch died, I still wore it. There was something about the watch that said, It doesn't matter what time it is. Think in months, years. Someone loves you. Where are you going? There are some things you will never do. It doesn't matter. There is no rush. Be the best prisoner you can be. And I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to go run through a wall. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I ever wanted to do. Um, and the be the best prisoner you can be line, he had worked in prisons before. And um, a prisoner had said to him, he said, I used to be angry, Mike told me. I'd pick fights over nothing. I was mad to be in prison. I want everyone else to be mad, too. But then I realized, man, this is my life. Do I want to be that guy, always mad? I'm not going to get married or have a family. Not today, maybe never. I'm going to be here. I'm a prisoner. There are some things I'm never going to do, and I can spend my life being mad about that, or I can try something else. I asked him what he had decided. I decided to be the best prisoner I could be, he yeah. said. And I was like, oh, man. That was a great Just a essay. really, really powerful essay. Did you read it, Julia? Yeah, of course I did. Uh, lots yeah, of really people good. shared that out. I read everything you put out on the internet, Todd. <laughs> As well you just should. Just so you know. As well you should. <laughs> so that's, that's <laughs> just so you are, Todd. There's a couple things I want to talk to you about. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to mention real briefly is this really cool book that we'd never talk about on the show, but which uh, was recommended to me by a, a student of mine, Emil Barrios, uh, called One Punch from the Promised Land. Leon Spinks, Michael Spinks, and the Myth of the Heavyweight Title by John Florio and uh, Weesey Shapiro, which is a book about uh, Leon and Michael Spinks, who are two brothers who were Olympic gold medalists, who went on to be the heavyweight champion of the world. Their rise from the ghettos to fame and to the inevitable crash landing afterwards. It's a fascinating book about the myth of the heavyweight title, which is that well, and, and maybe this isn't true anymore, but it used to be that if you were the heavyweight champion in the world, you know, you were Muhammad Ali or you were Mike Tyson and you were you were like a king. You were paraded around the world. And here are these two uneducated guys who both won the title and were really taken advantage of in different ways. The fascinating thing, well, there's a lot of fascinating things in this book, is that over and over again throughout the entire book, people just describe Leon Spinks as just being an idiot. Like they just say, he was dumb and not very well spoken and stupid and didn't think right. And I'm like, whoa, they are just driving this man into the ground, this poor guy. Um, but it's just the bluntness by which they say, you know, he was just a bull and people ran this bull for money. He was a ferocious fighter and people took advantage of him and he wasn't bright enough to figure it out. If you're at all interested in boxing, which I am, um, or sports or just people coming up out of nowhere to become famous, um, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting book and a good look at the world of boxing in the uh, late 1970s and early 1980s. Um, Leon Spinks, for those of you who have maybe a glimmer of an idea who he was, he beat Muhammad Ali to become the heavyweight champion of the world after only, I think it was eight fights. Um, and then Michael Spinks was heavyweight champion of the world until he got punched by Michael by Mike Tyson, and that pretty much ended his career. Um, so, good book for those of you who might be interested in that sort of stuff. Wow, what a great revisit, you guys. You guys. You all. Revealing myself to be from New hey, Jersey. Thanks, Julia. <laughs> thanks, Julia. Hey, Julia. Hey, thanks for the compliment, huh? No Why don't problem. you go over there and get me a pack of smokes, Todd. huh? <laughs> Julia is in, is in a Christian Bale movie where Christian Bale's lost a lot of weight and is wiry. Julia is our friend. <laughs> hey, Julia. Why don't you get me something to spit in, huh? <laughs> Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Literary Disco. We're going to talk today um, about not an entire book, but selections from a book. We're talking about this year's Best American Short Stories, which, um, if you're not familiar with it, Best American Short Stories comes out every year and celebrates the best fiction published in United States and Canadian magazines. And typically, it's not um, the smaller literary magazines. It, it, it's, it tends to more often cherry-pick from the big boys, from the Atlantic or Harper's or the New Yorker, places of that nature. Um, and they have a series editor, Heidi Pitlor, and then every year they have a guest editor. This year, that guest editor is uh, Elizabeth Strout. And the way it works is um, 
sort of mysterious. Everyone that is eligible, you know, they, they send in their magazines or their books or, or, uh, or their magazines or literary magazines. And presumably Heidi Pitlor reads everything and then presents her favorite hundred some odd stories to the guest editor and then they pick their, um, their favorites. Or the guest editor brings things to uh, the other editor's attention. It's not a, a very clear-cut experience. Uh, I think a lot of it is, you know, it's done on taste, which is fine. Um, and I should note my, my own personal bias is that I'm in the Best American series this year, so I, I've been very interested to see who else is in it, but I'm not in Best American Stories. I'm in Essays. And this year, actually, in Best American Short Stories, Another reason why we didn't read the entire book is that a couple people that we know are in it as well. Um, Brett Anthony Johnston and Sheila Kohler, for instance, um, two people that uh, the three of us all know from graduate school are uh, are in the book. Um, so at any rate, we picked three stories sort of at random to look at for this year. And I thought it'd be yeah, fun. You actually had some of yeah. the system. Yeah, I had, I had a system, a very scientific system. <laughs> I picked... Uh, I picked the Nobel Prize winner amongst everyone, so I picked Alice Munro. Um, I picked an up-and-comer, uh, Suzanne Rivica, um, who has one book of short stories and has won um, a couple major prizes, but I don't think, by and large, most people know who she is. Mm -hmm. And then I picked uh, a writer that does not have any books out and had one short story that I... My understanding is he wrote this short story in graduate school, and it was picked for The New Yorker, uh, a writer named Callan Wink. Um, so... Someone that no one's really probably ever heard of, an up-and-comer, and then someone that we've all heard of in Alice Munro. Um, and I hadn't read the stories beforehand. I just sort of looked at the bios and, and went from that. Um, well, obviously, I'd, I knew who Alice Munro was um, because we dated, and it got weird. And then I was like, you know what? I'm married. You're, like, you're I'm, married. I'm only going to be 33 in a couple years, so, you know, I'm way right. too young for You've you. got the Nobel and, like... You know, there's there's not three people in bed with us. You know, me, you, and the Nobel. Um, and that got weird because I wanted to fuck the Nobel. Um, <laughs> oh, so, at any rate, at, you. <laughs> at any rate, we picked these three stories to be uh, be sort of representative of the collection as a whole, and, and to sort of take a look at where the short story is in the in the realm of what's considered the best of the year. And I thought it, I, I was surprised by the the um, the similarities in the stories, and I was surprised by the differences in the stories. So I will uh, I'll let you guys talk about it first. Let, let, let's talk first about we'll, we'll go from from most known to least known. So let's start with Alice Munro's short story Train. Well, for me, like I opened up this book and I looked at the the list of you know authors that are included and and then the list of magazines that they're selected from and i just couldn't help but feel like again you know like there's just this mm -hmm. this kind of sense of inevitability it's like oh alice monroe she really needs some more attention and you know all these names that sound familiar or these magazines of course the new yorker is represented by like 10 of the you know 20 stories right. or whatever and it just it made me roll my eyes in a very kind of cynical but but man, God damn it, Alice Monroe is so good. I, <laughs> I'm glad you took I, that God Monroe in Damn it, there. Alice Monroe. I was reading it and I was just so. I mean, I I didn't want to like it, but she's so good, and this story is incredible. It like compresses the sensation of a novel, you know, the the sort of depth of feeling and story that you get usually from reading 150 pages at least into what 30, 40 pages. Right. She's a genius, and she, this is what she does, and it it killed me. It just completely killed me. That I, I mean, it was. It's not an easy read. It's not super fun. It's really dense, and um, you know, I found myself having to go back and be like, "What happened?" Because it's so subtle and uh, controlled. But the way she plots it is just perfect, and the reveals are buried perfectly. And I don't know. I mean, I think we should probably. We're probably going to spoil. All three of the yeah, stories. Yeah, let's spoil today. all the stories. I think everybody yeah. should, because they're short enough that if you have, I, I personally think everybody should read all three of these stories. I thought all three of them are great. And mm -hmm. so I would say if if you take the time now to turn off this episode and go read them and then come back. So I just thought that the, the way that the story was structured in particular really killed me um, because it started off, it starts off with a guy jumping off a train and he's coming back from World War II, or you're not really sure what war, but you're assuming it's either one or two. 
and it uh, turns out to be World War II. And he's jumping off of the train ahead of the stop he's supposed to get off. And um, he ends up at this farmhouse. And he, and at first I thought it was going to be like a um, like a Willa Cather story or... Um, mm-hmm. What's the who wrote Good Country Folks? That, or that was Flannery O'Connor. Good Country People. Flannery right? O'Connor. Where it was yep. like this sort of encounter between like a woman on a farm and like the stranger who shows up and somebody's going to be really cruel to somebody else. But that's not really mm-hmm. Alice Munro's style. That is such a like southern well, gothic I mean, it, style. And it is somewhat it, her style maybe. to have someone be really cruel to oh, someone. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, <laughs> I mean, she, she does that's that for sure. But you know what I mean. I expected it to be sort of a more tidy an encounter kind of short story, which is a mm-hmm. more predictable right. short story structure. Right. It's like you see two strangers meet in a sort of pastoral or country setting, and now we're gonna we're we're gonna reveal their true character in the court. But it ends up being much more like um, the comp- it ends up being uh, uh, reminded me of Train Dreams. It, Mm-hmm. Ironic yeah. enough that the title is Trains, in that it compresses a long span of time. Yeah, over twenty years. Over twenty years in a very short story. And then, anyway, as I was saying, the reveal of the of the plot, the the structure, because then you don't really learn about the beginning of the story until the very end. Right. It was just such a great twist. Like why he jumped off that train comes right, so right. late in the game. Mm-hmm. And that you don't even realize that you you had stopped asking why he jumped off the train, which started this whole series of events you've been reading. You don't even care about that anymore. And then you suddenly yeah, realize you that you do. Yeah, you think it's just a an, an incidental to get him to this woman, but really the woman is the incidental to reveal what he's been avoiding for this entire time. Yeah, I yes, too, you know, every time I read, every time I read Alice Monroe, I feel like, there's some major like I don't actually know what the structure of the story is until the end, which I love. There's always some major shift in time or perspective or character that we're following. You know, like I thought for a lot of this story that this story was really more about um, the woman Bella than the guy, mm-hmm. um, and then of course she exits um, or is left. You know, right in in Medios race, which is extremely sad. And, and one of those things where I kind of had to go back and say, wait, wait, what happened? Um, and you just feel like this guy's life has, he, you know, he's taking these strange turns to avoid things. So I really love, that's my favorite thing about Alice Monroe is I always feel surprised by what is happening structurally with the stories. And she, she really sort of sets it up in the first line. I mean, you have to go back to the first line to realize that this, the entire story is based on it. This is a slow train anyway, and it slows some more for the curve. <laughs> that is what the entire story is about. <laughs> mm-hmm. The entire story is about a slow process of tiny turns mm-hmm. and coincidences as it happens, too. I mean, this is a story that is built on some pretty strong coincidence. And I think a lot of times, you know, coincidences happen, or else we wouldn't have a word for it. But uh, I think a lot of times in stories, it can feel, um, it can feel, you know, hard to pull it off. But Alice Monroe really manages to do it also because of this, the point of view in the story is really strange. Is I mean, it's, it's sometimes close right. third person. Sometimes it's omniscient third person. Sometimes it shifts in one paragraph between one person's point of view and another person's point of view. The dialogue sometimes is told and sometimes is summarized within the same line of dialogue. Well, it's all very unusual. And I think the, the, we should explain the plot a little bit. So there's a man who's coming home from World War II, as Ryder said, who jumps off of a slow-moving train onto a farm of a woman who appears to be living alone with uh, a cow and a broken-down horse. And she's living in an old house that is in terrible need of repair that is stacked to the rafters with old newspapers. Um, and the day that he comes to see her, she offers to feed him, and he gratefully takes the food. And then she says, will you fix the horse trough? And he says, sure, I'll fix the horse trough. But it turns out he actually has to build her a whole new one. And within a line, it goes from building the horse trough to him rebuilding her entire house. And you realize, oh, shit, he just stayed for 20 years. And Alice Monroe just jumps, basically, 20 years in time with just little tiny drop-ins on what life was like in those 20 years. So the... The uh, what's the man's name? Jackson. Um, Jackson. So Jackson lived in a town up the road, uh, another train stop away. But he says a very interesting thing. You know, at first, 
so you, you know there's some menace here or something for him to be worried about because he talks about not wanting to leave the house and, and being worried about going into this other small town where they live. But then he realizes that small towns don't talk to other small towns. If, you, if there's something that you don't have in your small town, you don't go to another small town to get it. You go to the big city to get it, which I thought was a, such a, yes. cool, insight. a, a cool insight, a mind-blowing <laughs> insight. Um, he, he, you have him living in this town and always in the back of the reader's mind is the sense that he's running from something, that there is something on the other side of this town that he can't go to that would reveal some dark secret, which adds a real level of foreboding menace that I think you get in a lot of Alice Monroe stories where people are hiding a secret of, of some kind about something. And that really pushes the narrative along because you, you, even though you've sort of forgotten he jumped off the train, you still know that he's hiding from something, which I think is really, really cool. And then what he's hiding from, the twist that we get at the end, I, I guess it depends how much we want to ruin the story for people. <laughs> it, it, it's a pretty good twist. It's a, it's a pretty surprising twist. And a surprising way that it's revealed. In retrospect, it's a really interesting con- collision of two characters, but it takes so long to realize what draws them to each other and what sort of connects them and what allows them to have this functioning, dysfunctional relationship uh, that mm-hmm. serves both of their purposes. You know, for him, he's able to be somewhere and feel grounded and not threatened by a woman wanting to be with him in any way. And then she's able to have somebody help her fix up her house and sort of get her life cleaner and more in order. Um, in retrospect, it's kind of really sweet, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Like it becomes right. a very, it's not as sad as what you thought. And the, for the whole first half of the story, you're like, what's with these people? Like, don't they want to you know, help each other do more? Or don't they want to be together? Or what's going on? And then it turns out. Well, until one of them wounded. abandons them at the hospital. I know. Right. That's... <laughs> well, he, he spends his entire life sort of building walls of protection around people, but not interacting with them himself. So he, when, when Belle needs someone emotionally, when she's dying of cancer, he leaves her. When someone comes looking for their daughter and he might know where that daughter is, he doesn't give the information. You know, all, all that stuff, that the lack of interpersonal connection He's happy to build houses and, and take care of roofs and, and make better toilets and things of that nature, but he can't handle people one-to-one. Right. Um, he jumps so, off I mean, at the curves, I, I, which is, again, He the jumps first off paragraph. at the slow curves. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Which is the mastery of, of Alice Monroe is that if you, once you go back and, and try to... I read the story twice because I've forgotten all the important stuff, mm-hmm. and everything's there. I mean, she sets it up in um in emotional conflict at the beginning to pay it off at the end and you don't even realize she's done it um and i I mean that's the that's why she won a nobel prize i mean that's why she's alice monroe that's why even though every year when they put out a best american short stories she's in it and you think ah another one by alice monroe it's because she's a fucking genius because she's the the best best of our time um and sometimes that just means you're the best you can you can overlook the best sometimes and say someone else should deserve it. But you know what? This is the kind of story that people should read. You know, it's the kind of fiction that, you know, is meaningful and, and, and makes you think about things. Let's talk about next uh, Philanthropy by Suzanne Rivica. And Suzanne, if you're listening, we hope we're, you're, we're pronouncing your name correctly. So Suzanne Rivica, um, her story, Philanthropy, appeared in the magazine Granta. And I should note that um, Alison Rose's story was in, um, was in Harper's. So Suzanne Rivica is the author of a short story collection, Death is Not an Option, which came out in 2010 and was a finalist for the Story Prize, something we just mentioned, um, and also the New York Public Library Young Lions Award, which um, Ron Curry Jr., whose book we read, Flimsy Little Plastic Miracles, uh, he won one of those, uh, the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award, and the Penn Hemingway Award. These are all very prestigious prizes, but if you were to walk into just about any bookstore in America and ask anyone if they've ever heard of Suzanne Rivica, they would probably say no. I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a pretty odd thing. Um, she also won the Rome Prize in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Um, and she lives in San Francisco and works at an organization that serves the homeless. So she's been in a lot of hmm. good places, won a lot of prestigious awards. I don't think she's a, a household name by any stretch of the imagination, but I think she probably will be. I think she's a really strong writer. Um, the The first time that I had heard of her prior to reading the story was actually just a couple months ago. She wrote an article um, about Mary Gateskill that got a lot of press. Um, 
about how men review Mary Gates skills. So if you're interested in that, you can you can look that up. Um, but anyway, so her short story Philanthropy appeared in uh, in Granta, and it's the first story of hers I've ever read. So uh, Philanthropy concerns uh, a young woman named Cora who works at uh, a drop-in in San Francisco with um, you know hookers and drug addicts and things of that sort. Um, and she is a former drug addict it's also and, specifically and a prostitute. Shelter too. Yeah, women's shelter. Um, and she is a former drug addict and street person. And she is to meet with a woman who is very clearly Jackie Collins, um, <laughs> a woman named uh, Yvonne Borneo, who is a famous novelist who writes books like Heirloom, Ruffian, Seductress, and so The Illegitimate novelist. Prince's mm -hmm. Child. Yeah, the sweeping romance novels. Um, Fabio would be on the cover of her books. Right. Right. Um, but, and she lives in a giant house in San Francisco and, um, you know, is, it, it, it it's clearly Jackie Collins because Jackie Collins, I think, lives nearby there. Um, but, you know, just sort of has this, um, you know, 1980s kind of glamour in her photos and, and I imagine her wearing shoulder pads, basically. I see her in shoulder pads, big, big shoulder pads. Right. So this big romance novelist is considering giving money to this women's shelter and Cora... Right is the person she's meeting with, and Cora, our, our main character, grew up in and out of shelters as a runaway from the age of 14. And when she was 15, she was in a shelter with this romance novelist's daughter. Yeah. Who then Who's went now on dead. to commit suicide, which is why Yvonne, the romance novelist, is now giving money to things like women's shelters because she's in the honor of her daughter who committed suicide. So this is a story that I liked. I thought it was... It, really well well written um but even just describing like that layout it's very um very tidy like it's very mm -hmm. um you know like the, the, the collision of characters is kind mm -hmm. of perfectly aligned do you know what i mean like yeah the the two daughters were in a shelter together and now the sort of mother daughter rich poor collision in this perfect way where one has to ask for something from the other which resembles forgiveness, and the other one is a rich person who needs a real encounter with the grit of this lifestyle. I don't know. It's just—it's a good story, um, but I—I I think maybe, and maybe I'm just too cynical about short fiction. But it just felt like kind of um, kind of predictable, or, or not predictable so much as um, obligatory. You know, it felt like a story that had to be written. That I don't know. The coolest part to me is that she's a romance novelist. I found that fascinating. Just right. I like the connection of like a romance novelist giving money to a women's shelter because for some reason that like line between uh, there is a there's a line in here where it says um, where you know Cora's thinking about how she needs the money. She says the money from airport book sales and Hallmark Hall of Fame movie rights and the pocket change of millions of frustrated housewives. And I just love that idea of like yeah. all these women who read romance novels, the audience for these romance novels and the Lifetime movies and, and how that money is, you know, filled this, this one woman's pockets and now she's turning around to give it to women's shelter. Like, that connection was fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. And I wish the story had focused a little bit more on that and less on the, the more predictable mother-daughter dynamics between these two characters. I don't know. What do you guys think? You know, I... I, the the first half of the story to me, where, which is basically the courtship of the romance writer through the uh, a terrible but common day in Cora's life, which is that DJ, uh, an addict, shows up in the middle of this meeting, basically dope sick and you know needing a place to stay and covered in her own piss and vomit and whatnot. And Yvonne helps clean her up, and then they get her um, fifty-one fifty for the night. I mean that that mm -hmm. that just happens on that day. And I found that sort of less compelling and less willing, less the thing that really struck me than the very end of the story, the last third of the story, which is when Cora goes to Yvonne's giant mansion to talk to her after all of this has happened, and they have a really honest conversation that I, I think. To, for me, at least, it, it doesn't end tidily there. Right. You know, there's, there, there, it ends on a mess. And I feel like the writer's intention here, and I think it's important to think about the writer's intention, is to, is to do that, is that we are waiting for the predictable thing of, is she going to give her the money or not give her the money? Mm -hmm. Is she going to be able to save these people's jobs and keep the lights on and, and keep this woman DJ, for instance, who's now been shipped off to a hospital, get her clean and sober and back on the road? 
that's the, that's the Lifetime movie. That's the romance novel that we want to see. But instead, we get a very human interaction between two people in a complete in in another controlled setting. So the first controlled setting is the shelter. The second controlled setting is this woman's um, mansion where they have a, a dinner with you know a a butler and, and all that shit. Um, but they end up having this this very fraught conversation. That's what that's what saved this story for me. This is that's what made it the kind of story that ends up in Best American because of that conversation between the two of them upsetting what was i think a pretty standard setup of the two people well first we see well i mean i really like this story i i found it refreshing and and i'm sure part of that is that this is my world this is you know stepping squarely into like i have hung out with rich romance novelists specifically so that the mark twain house can take their money (laughs) um that is you know, so this had more of a realism to me than I think it would to to others. But um, you know, and and that sounds more crass than than I mean it because there is a reality to the fact that these kind of writers or celebrities, you know, do have extreme power in what they choose um, mm-hmm. to give their money to. Um, so I I really like the story on that level. Um, but I also felt like. Um, I, for the same reasons that Todd did, I really liked both halves because first we're seeing Yvonne in Cora's world, and of course we agree with Cora's moral righteousness, but then we see Cora almost trespassing emotionally in Yvonne's world as well, and they're mm-hmm. both, you know, they're they're really both making major missteps conversationally and and it ends up that Cora, you know, acts like an asshole, which I think that a lot of us would do in in that scenario. So I really enjoyed that it wasn't just like the the first if it was the first half of the story, it would have ended with this, you know, vague, you know, Yvonne drifted off into nowhere thing and that would be, you know, like the workshop short story. But I liked that Cora got to say her peace of mind, say her secret that she's been hoarding and really deal with the consequences of that because it was so emotionally devastating to say to a parent, you know, like I know your daughter, I know your daughter. And and essentially what Yvonne says is there's no way that you can know her. You know, if I her own mother couldn't have known her, how can you dare claim to have known anything about her. You don't know what you're talking about, which I found to Mm -hmm. be such a true statement and such a humanizing statement on behalf of, of this wealthy person who would be easy to, to write off if, if not for that conversation. Well, there, there's this great paragraph, um, at the end of this, towards the end of this, that, that talks about, um, and again, we're going to, we're ruining the story for you. So if you're, you don't want to know what happens, stop listening for a moment. Um, so Cora has basically just screamed at Yvonne saying, you know, I know all about you. I know all about your daughter. Um, you know, th- this is the true life. People like taking drugs, etc." And Yvonne says, I'll tell you, she said, they'd say exactly what I'm about to. They'd say, my daughter was an ocean underneath an ocean. And it would be true. I see these girls on the streets, girls like DJ, the girls in your drop-in. And I know every single one of them is someone's daughter. And to their own parents, every single one of them is an ocean underneath an ocean. She tapped her index finger on the table in rhythm with the words, fathoms and fathoms deep, a complete mystery. My daughter is completely unfathomable to me, and certainly, if I may say, to you. I, like, I love that idea of an ocean underneath an ocean. Mm-hmm. It's, a, I mean, it's a, a wonderful way of, you know, no one knows anyone, really. You know, everyone has a different life. And, I, and in a normal story... That would be the point at which Cora says, I'm sorry, you're right. But all it does is piss her off, <laughs> which, I think is, which I think is sort of amazing. Like, she just becomes even more self-righteous. And what you keep expecting to happen is that they're going to reach some sort of moment where, you know, they understand each other completely. But the story ends with a very strange moment between the two of them, um, where... Cora says something, and I won't necessarily ruin um, what Cora says, but Cora says something very unlike Cora to Yvonne, and they they just sort of share a look at each other. And that way, it's sort of what people complain about sometimes in short stories. That they just sort of stop on an ellipses, and it's left up to the reader to figure out what happens next. Well, no, they hug, and, I, and it's fake. That's what it is, which right. is an ending that I like. They embrace 
and it is equally false for both of them is the sense that I got, which is less of an ellipsis than the gaze across the table into nothingness. <laughs> also yeah. known as every story I wrote from about 1987, 19, yeah. well, let's say 2000, 2012, 13. I don't know. It still feels kind of like an ellipsis to me. I think that's why I, the story was ultimately a little unsatisfied. It still feels a little bit like... Um, you know, let's bring these people to the brink of their fullest, biggest, most confrontation. Oh, first of all, I, I feel like the, the story sets them up in cartoonish ways. You know, um, she, you know, Yvonne is clearly the rich, the rich bitch who doesn't understand Cora's life. And we, we know that that's not real, right? We know that that's Cora's perception and that that's going to change. And then, you know, Cora is the hardworking, hard scrabble, uh, you know, bleeding heart who just takes care and of course we're going to find out that there's more to her than that so i feel like when you start with two extreme cartoony sort of characters it's really easy to melt them into oh they're more than that and then okay now we know that they're both more than that and then we're gonna have them sort of connect i I just that's i don't know i i I think maybe i'd rather this was a novel or something or something that, that kept going a little bit more or gave me a little bit more as a short story it felt like I said earlier, it, it, it felt a little, um, not easy because it's certainly well thought. And, and, and I feel that Suzanne Rivica has, has invested in these characters ultimately, but I don't know if the plot has invested in these characters. Hmm. I don't know if she's thought the plot all the way through it to some kind of conclusion that either really changes one of them or lets me feel like one of them, um, I don't know, like you were saying, I, I agree with you, Julie. I think they're both kind of lying to each other to have this transactional moment at the end. That that, But that feels still feels like an ellipsis. Like, okay, so well, what's going to happen next? Like, really, what's going to happen next? I don't, I don't know. Like, she's probably going to give her the money, and then they'll both go back to their lives, and they'll both still feel like the other is a cartoon. I'm not sure. Like, I don't get... Part of it is, did you guys see this movie, Short Term 12? No. It's a really good movie, and I feel like it does something better than this short story it's a very similar subject it's a it's about a kid's shelter for kids who um when they're on short term like when their parents are going through some tragic custody battle or whatever or they're a troubled child with you know nowhere to go they send them to facilities for what's called short term 12 it's like a short term facility for under 12 months and um it's about the people that work there and um I feel like that movie accomplished so much more just in its procedural nature. Like, it was so much more fascinating to just watch how the kids and the uh, the people that take care of them, who in that movie are like this story, were kids themselves that grew up in short-term 12 shelters who mm-hmm. end up becoming the, the caretakers. Not the psychiatrists, not the social mm-hmm. workers, the people that, like, are cleaning the bathrooms and watching the kids right. all day. And, and that's... That character of like that Cora's position is really fascinating to me, and and I feel like Short Term Twelve delved into that so much better than this short story. And you know, not that it, it's I mean that's comparing apples and oranges, but I think that because I I, I had higher yeah. hopes because I had loved that movie and I really loved the way that those actors and the the director had portrayed that um, that lifestyle. The fact that this one felt a little more skimming the surface and then didn't resolve some of its tensions really for me. I was like, oh, well, I'm still, I still don't know how to feel about these shelters and these rich people at the end of the story. I'm kind of still like, well, I, I don't know. I'm just, it's you know, you know, what's interesting is that I went, I don't know if either of you looked at the contributors note on this story. Um, so at, for, if you've never read the best American short stories before at the, at the end of it, uh, the writers talk about their inspiration for the stories, which sometimes I think is good and sometimes I think is bad because most of the time I don't want to know. I just want to read the story. And she says something interesting. Um, let's see here. One moment, please. Um, about her inspiration for the story, which is that she says, I work as a grant writer for a nonprofit that serves homeless runaways in San Francisco. Philanthropy had its genesis in my frustration with the sometimes sanitized and simplified way in which I have to portray our clients' lives, circumstances, and trajectories for the benefit of potential funders. When you're scrounging for money from rich, faceless entities, a, penit- a, pen- a penitential, penitential quality infuses the prose by default. It's like you revert back to some hardwired feudal mindset, hat in hand. 
There's no bigger sin in America than having the temerity to make others bear witness to destitution, and I atone for that sin by grafting an implicitly flattering aspirational arc onto each request. If you give us money, rich people, you'll be helping these poor boys and girls become more like you, normal, relatable, sympathetic. Um, and then she goes on, and she says, When I wrote a first draft of the story, I showed it to a few people at an artist residency. One woman, who may or may not have been the female incarnation of Mitt Romney, approached me to give me a lecture about my unfair portrayal of the downtrodden rich. She said, look, my family has a lot of money, and I have a lot of rich friends, and they're good people from Brookline, Massachusetts. Just because someone's rich doesn't mean they're bad and foolish. After all, they're the ones who are putting up the money. They put all the money, but they still have to take all of the ridicule. It's just not fair. Well, lady, this is for you. If any residents of Brookline want to redeem their town's image, I invite them to go to homelessyouthalliance.org and chip in a dollar. Um, wow. And I, so... That makes me really dislike... <laughs> Seriously. So, it's really you know, self-righteous. It, so it's, you know, it's... It's an interesting thing. You know, I think we all are inspired by different things. Um, but, I, you know, I don't think what she says, I, you know, I, I, I take what she says seriously because she wouldn't have put it in there. But I also think that by giving this character of this rich novelist this troubled life and this troubled experience and, uh, you know, some empathy here that... You know, she does see them still as human beings. She doesn't. She gives the best line of the story to this woman: the oceans underneath oceans. Mm-hmm. Um, she that she gives her the complexity to understand. Well, no, because Cora undermines means. that right away. Cora says that's a that's an artful abdication of responsibility. The consigning of every lost daughter to a communal slag heap of pretty Persephone's. But it still is true. What do you mean? It's you true? know, that a parent uh, feels uh, that way. That they're both true. You know, that you can feel that someone is completely unknowable, particularly when they're lost to you, when they do things completely outside of your realm of understanding, and that it is a coping device. Both of those things are true. All right. Well, now let's talk about the value of kitten life, because we have one more story to talk about, <laughs> and it yes, involves we do. a lot we of do dead indeed. cats. A lot. There's a lot. There's a, 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 a dispiriting number of dead cats. <laughs> So the last story that we looked at is Breatharians by Callan Wink. And Callan Wink sold this story to The New Yorker along with another story, it turns out, while he was a graduate student at the University of Wyoming. I read a little article about him afterwards because I'd never heard of him. Um, so he has no books out yet or anything. Um, he's just one of those guys, not unlike, you know, like Jim Gavin, who'd been on our show, who's one of his first short stories appeared in The New Yorker. So you write a good story and sometimes... You win the lottery, um, which is cool. And then he got selected for Best American Short Stories. Um, so Breatharians uh, takes place in the 1980s on a farm in um, rural America somewhere. <laughs> um, they're listening to uh, Tigers games, so perhaps it's, it's Michigan. Um, but it's uh, a young man. His father and his mother are essentially separated, the mother living in the old house on the farm, the father living in the new house on the farm with a young woman of 18. Uh, and his father asks him to do a job. His father asks, and the main character's name is August, and August's father asks him to kill all of the cats that are living in their barn, and he'll give them money for every cat that he kills. And that is the basic setup of the story. And, and I have to tell you, I was like, well, there's no fucking way this is actually going to be a story where he kills a bunch of cats. Yep. And then it turns out, no, it is a story where he brutally kills a bunch of cats. Yeah. It, it's, it's a pretty unsettling story. I liked this story as well. I liked all the stories. Um, and I like this one because, actually partly because it just went for what first turned out to be cat homicide and then turned into cat genocide. Um, basically, <laughs> you know, this moment <laughs> where a child is really being taught to be cruel. I mean, I I enjoyed that, where he's taking these, like, emotional, poignant moments of his life. And I don't know if I really want to spoil this one of how the cat genocide is enacted, but he's taking an earlier moment of his life that was very emotional, and he applies it to cat genocide, which is so... And, you know, you see him being torn apart by his parents, mm-hmm. and then talking shit about each other, and then this weird relationship with this farmhand who wears long johns around the house 
which is very upsetting to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> and the farmhand is an 18-year-old woman with rosacea, which is yeah. really weird. Yeah. A very interesting detail. So, yeah, I, I I enjoyed this story while at the same time feeling like, ah, yes, the vaguely pastoral, lots of dead animals short story. What did you guys think? <laughs> I really like this story, and I think it's it's those details, those weird details that you're talking about that make it truly great. Um, I think the fact that, like, I can feel... Like, if I think about this story right now, I can feel the heft of the wrench that he used to kill some mm-hmm, cats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The fact that I have a very clear image of what that farmhand looks like um, while she's having sex and walking mm-hmm. around in her long johns. That I know what the mom looks like very clearly in my mind while she's playing solitaire poorly. Like, it's a very <laughs> vivid story for me. And that's, I can't say that about, like, the other... Even Alice Monroe, which is a beautiful story and, and, and the Susan Rebecca, which is also very well written. This one, the images and the feelings stay with me a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a little more cinematic maybe, or there's something in my head that's stronger about this one. Um, well, it's the kind of story that you like. I guess, so, I mean, <laughs> I guess it's more of my style. I don't know. What, where cattails are nailed to a board. <laughs> no, I mean, when I, when I read this story, I was like, oh, this, this is going to be one of those stories that writers can remember for the rest of his life. Because it's, it's a young man coming of age in rural America dealing with things outside of the modern world. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's literally like this story was written for writers strong. <laughs> well, at first I was a little like, it was a little heavy handed on the similes. Did you guys notice mm-hmm. that? Yes, and I did. They, they, <laughs> an editor needed to like just cross some of them out. It was like right on the first page. The cats, Caligos, Tabbies, Dirty, White, Gray, Jet, Black, and Tawny sat among the hay bales scratching and yawning like indolent apes inhabiting the remains of a ruined temple. <laughs> what? Yeah. And then like a couple lines later, there's another one. Uh, stacking up like currency in the teller drawer of some strange Martian bank. So there's a couple, and then the next page, it was like the house was a single level ranch, low slung like a dog crouching to avoid a kick. So I I was like, oh God, this is one of those, um, well, it's it's not surprising to me that he was in graduate school when he wrote this, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, but I... I, I, Yeah, I think it is is the least polished of the three, but it it also feels the least... um, it, it it feels the most directly emotional. Like yes. I like I get from this story this this writer is really putting in a lot of and I you know I hazard to say personal emotion into it because we all put personal emotion into it. But it feels like a more personal story. Vivid emotion, uh, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Because I feel like yeah. he knows who each one of these characters are and is just giving us a, like a slight portrait of them. But there's right. a mm-hmm. lot of depth behind. Like the mom, for instance, is an amazing character. Like she's my she's favorite. She's very, um, yeah, she's an incredible character because you here you are in this you're you're introduced to this rural you know environment, and so you sort of expect a and, and the dad is introduced as very clearly like kill those cats. Here's a wrench, you know, like sort of man's man, the man of few words, and then the mom turns out to be this incredibly intelligent, verbose, educated you know, woman with these really interesting philosophical ideas, including the Bertharian philosophy that, you know, she's adopting, which is this idea that uh, has sort of floated around new agey circles um, that you can survive on breath alone without food. And, you know, you slowly realize that the mom... (laughs) Which is is crazy. um, Which is crazy. And that's the thing, you realize the mom is is going crazy, you know, because of the events that have preceded where the story starts. Um, but, you know, you're also sympathetic to the mom. But you, I, I guess what I'm saying is the mom only appears in, like, three short scenes mm-hmm. in a short story, and yet I feel like I know the woman very well. And that's cool. Like, that's great writing to me. And I feel that way about most of the... I mean, all three of the characters. Uh, the the, the farmhand, who could be, you know, the way we've even talked about her here is very... Uh, it's all about her physical, sexual being. But the truth is, she's desperately trying to be a good stepmother. Or, right almost stepmother to this 12 year old who is completely blowing her off because of his complicated feelings towards her. But the truth is she's found herself in a interesting situation that she's trying to work out. So I don't know. I, I thought, I think as far every character gets their due in some moment. Um, and that's, that's good writing for a short story. And mm-hmm. I think that this bizarre situation that is set up for the kid, dad has told you to go kill the cats is handled with no shock on anyone's part, which makes it, 
more shocking for us. So there's this bit where he, uh, August is sitting there talking to his mom and he says, dad gave me a job uh, for money. And she says, oh, I'm proud to hear it. Did you negotiate contracts, set a salary review option pending exemplary <laughs> performance? And he says, no, I'm just killing the cats in the barn. Mm-hmm. And it's just simple. You know, and no shock, no surprise. But then later on in the story, you recognize that she, the mother, recognizes that it's going to be an issue and that he recognizes it too. And I don't remember where it is exactly, but she basically says, you know, this is the sort of thing that's going to stick with you. This event that Mm -hmm. you're doing is going to stick with you. Um, And I thought that was a very, it was a good moment of parenting and a, a good moment of writing that we are recognizing that it it has stuck with him because the story is being told to us mm-hmm. that yeah. you know this wholesale slaughter of of the cats and you know i think i think writing um a story with not just dead cats but cats that you kill but also a dead family dog which plays a big role in this that has a very strong emotional impact on the main character like you you don't get a lot of dead dog stories or dead cat stories you, i think in your career you, you you're allowed to write one dead dog or dead cat story and then that's it um because otherwise it just you know there it's sad because everyone's experienced it but if everything you write is a dead dog story apart from amy hempel who can apparently write you know a thousand dead dog stories but she's amy hempel it it is a it is a cliche you know it is it is a coming of age cliche because so many of us have that experience when we're coming of age but he manages to pull it off because he also murders some cats in the process, which I think is a, a really, you know, ballsy turn by him. The story ends with a very striking, I mean, you know, it, it's, it doesn't seem like it ends in a good place. No. Like, I don't feel good about this kid's future, no. and I don't feel good about the mom's future. No. I don't feel good about everybody's future. Um, so it's not tidy, you know. I mean, I, it's, it's a good, I, I, yeah, you're right. It was written for me. I <laughs> <laughs> but you know it it portends the problems that are about to come for this kid uh, there's a great short story by richard ford that um he says at, at the end of it that he knew that trouble was about to come down on him after the events in the story and that's basically what this story is about trouble is going to come down on this kid um it, it it's yeah. not going to get easier for him Right. This is like the flashback scene from somebody in jail. Yeah. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> right. How, how did you get to this point at, you know, 24 or whatever, where you're in prison for the rest of your life? Well, here you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is a great place for a short story to occupy, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. We know where it's going in so many ways without it needing to go there for us. We, we get the point. I, you know what I think the, the best thing about the Best American series every year is, is that most people, by and large, don't read short stories. We've talked about right, that on right, the right. show before. But they walk into Barnes & Noble or you know they're on Amazon and it's on the front page there and they see that table of Best American Short Stories of 2013 or Best American Essays or Best American Science Writing. They have that whole series. There's like, you know, there's like 10 books in it. And you're like, oh, well, if I read this, I'll have a pretty good idea of where the short story is in America today. That's probably not true necessarily, but at least it's giving you a pretty good feel for what some really strong literary fiction is doing. And I think it also introduces you to writers that are going to be the big writers of the the next generation. I mean, obviously there's a lot of established writers in the book already, but when you look at the last two stories that we read by writers that we're not all that familiar with, you can see where they're going. Like you can see the future for both of these writers just in these short stories. You can you can understand sort of the the, the weighty topics that they're going for. The, these aren't young people writing stories about their fucked up roommates. These are young writers writing important emotional things that, you know, touch a nerve, which I think is important. But more importantly, can we talk a little bit about this breathing thing? <laughs> when, People have died doing this. It's a real thing. One of my first jobs out of college was working for an infomercial company where we made infomercials and then we also sold infomercials. So that's a, an odd thing about the infomercial world is that sometimes the advertising agency also creates the ads. And there was a very popular infomercial that we did um, where you lost weight and gained fitness by breathing. And it was a whole thing. I think I want to say it was called like body flex or something like that. And the uh. the person who was in charge of it was this woman named Greer. Um, that was the the um, the star of the infomercial. And so like I remember the first week that I was on the job, we had this you know big creative meeting. We're all sitting in the room and. The account executive for the breathing to lose weight things talking about this information, how we got to really, you know, let's look at new markets and we're doing this, doing this. And I raised my hand. I'm like, 
I'm sorry. I'm not familiar with this product. Are we talking about we're selling breathing? And they're like, yeah, it's a very, very profitable infomercial for us. And I was like, I've, I gotta get the fuck out of this job. I've That's got crazy. to get the fuck out of this job. Yeah. Like, who, who fucking believes that? Really desperate, new agey people who want to lose weight, first of all, but then also who want to believe in the power of the mind over their body. You know, it's like, it's like the ultimate discipline. Yeah. It's, mm. I mean, obviously, if you were to practice it purely, you would die. But it's, I can see how <laughs> in a new age situation, the idea is that, you know, you have everything. Well, how many people fucking fast on a regular basis? Like yeah. everywhere in America, people do these juice fasts or the, you know, the the cleanse fast. And it's all the same shit. It's just, you lose a bunch of weight because you don't eat. Right. And you poop weird because you're not eating and you're drinking oil. So you think, oh, the toxins are... What toxins? There's no toxins in your body and they're not coming out through your poop. Like, stop, you know? But everyone buys into this. Americans do it all the time. We're idiots. Like, just eat healthy. Just have a normal diet. Like... Oh my god, the amount of people I've had this cayenne pepper juice cleanse conversation with, like, just eat a little bit less, okay? And, and eat some fruits and vegetables and exercise. I can't believe how how much that took hold. It still takes hold. I, I still have a conversation with people. I'm like, I'm not even going to get into it with you, but yeah, fine. Okay, don't eat for 15 days. You'll feel wonderful, and then you'll gain it all back, all right? And that'll do it for this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when special guest Will Friedel has us read our first full-blown fantasy novel, Mistborn, by Brandon Sanderson. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and join us in Goodreads. Thanks for listening.